The latest episode of the Next 5 podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next 5 wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Italy is an easy country to like. John Lydon, the lead singer of the Sex Pistols, fell in love with the country when he spent five months there in the early 1980s filming Order of Death, a crime caper featuring the punk pioneer and Harvey Keitel. He said, Move to Italy, I mean it. They know about living in debt. They just don't care. Well, Italy has long been synonymous with La Bella Vita, but as Johnny Rotten noted, its economic lethargy and budgetary incontinence has left it with one of the biggest debt piles on the planet. I'm Robin Wigglesworth, the US Markets Editor at the Financial Times. And over the course of the next four days, I'm going to take you on a tour of the fascinating world of sovereign debt restructuring. We'll start with how and why countries go bankrupt, what happens if they default on their debts, and how, if at all, they can recover. In each episode, I'll call on some of the biggest names in sovereign debt, from economists to the restructuring lawyers, and even some of my colleagues to help explain the story. Italy is the perfect backdrop to our first episode, in which we'll delve into the question of when a country's debts are simply unsustainable. The Italian government currently owes its creditors almost 2.2 trillion euros, or about 36,000 euros per resident. That burden equates to nearly 140% of its annual gross domestic product. That has caused some economists to question whether Italy is solvent and able to service its debts in the long run. This concern has only grown deeper in recent years as the Eurozone crisis exacerbated concerns over its creditworthiness and brought the country to the brink of bankruptcy. Recall that Italy's current debt-to-GDP ratio is about 140%. Well, Italy recently agreed to reduce it to 60% by 2030. Italian economist Ugo Panizza caused a stir a few years ago when he published a paper arguing that Italy's debts were probably not manageable, and getting them to 60% of GDP was a fairy tale. A miracle may happen, but, you know, short of a miracle, this is not achievable. I caught up with Ugo at DebtCon, a sovereign debt restructuring conference in Washington, D.C. earlier this year. The, the more difficult question is whether Italy could continue to service its debt and sort of to stabilize its debt and maybe decrease it a little bit, not to get, you know, to 60%, but to go down maybe to 200%. And this depends on, on two things, whether the interest rate will stay low. So the key factor is whether you're able to, to pay interest on your debt and and, and the second, whether uh, economic growth will pick up. Now, this is a scary prospect. The sheer size of its debts means that if Italy fell over the fiscal cliff or was unable to make its debt payments, then the ramifications would reverberate across the world. Virtually every Italian bank would collapse and swaths of the European banking industry could also fall. The global economy might even be tipped into a depression. But if Greece was too big to fail, then Italy is too big to save. No one, not even the International Monetary Fund, the traditional lender of last resort for countries, 
has the financial firepower to bail out Italy if its borrowing costs spike again. Like I said, that's an unnerving prospect. I think uh, in this uh, purely hypothetical scenario, at this stage, this would be quite scary uh, because unlike other uh, Euro-area countries uh, which have gone through you know, even uh, a worse crisis than uh, Italy did in uh, 2011, Italy's size and the public debt uh, size uh, do not make Italy able to seek lending from the IMF. That's Domenico Lombardi, a former IMF official and a director of the think tank CIGI. In other words, the IMF finances are not enough to stabilise the country's prospects. By the same token, the ESM, the European Stability Mechanism um, lending capacity, is also quite limited, and therefore the ESM uh, too would be unable to provide for a stabilising intervention to the country. This is why corrective measures would have to be hypothetically uh, much harsher because it would be really difficult for Italy to regain access to the market against the lack of, uh, you know, uh, suitable official uh, financing, certainly not in a quantity that other Eurozone countries of smaller size might have enjoyed. What Domenico means is that without someone able to bankroll Italy, the government would have to immediately tighten its belt with such force and abruptness they could plunge the economy into a depression. However, Italy is a good example of how countries can totter on for years, even decades and generations, with debt burdens that economists would consider dangerously high. Italy's debt-to-GDP ratio is eye-wateringly high, but Japan's is north of 200%, and it can still borrow money virtually free of charge. While Japan benefits from its central bank's supersized quantitative easing program, which is snapping up most of its debts, Italy in theory does not control its own monetary policy. Uruguayan economist Arturo Pozakansky of the American University in Washington thinks this is often a huge issue for struggling countries. But on balance, Italy benefits from its membership of the European Union and the Eurozone. The judgment on any uh, sovereign being insolvent is, is very hard to make because things can change over time. Even though, say, Italy has low growth and uh, has deteriorated competitiveness and has been not been making the structural reforms as circumstances call for and so on, the fact that they're under the umbrella, under the Eurozone and, and EU umbrella, does count for something. Indeed, whilst Italy does not control its own monetary policy, the European Central Bank has taken forceful steps to prevent a calamity in the Eurozone, including buying sovereign bonds of countries like Italy. And so uh, I think that uh, if they were a standalone entity, they probably would have a much lower uh, credit rating and much more limited access to the capital markets than they do. The debate over whether Italy's debts are sustainable highlights just how tricky this determination can be. Walter Rissen, a former chief of Citibank, once quipped that countries don't go bust. On one hand, he's right. Countries don't go bankrupt like companies do, with their assets seized and divvied up by creditors and wound down by an administrator. But they have a long, illustrious history of reneging on their debts. 
The International Monetary Fund operates with a rule of thumb that developed countries are to keep their debts below 85% of GDP, whilst emerging economies, which are more vulnerable, should aim to stay below 70%. But this is only a rough guideline. There are many, many factors that can tip a country into the financial abyss. One factor is the maturity of the debts. A country that faces imminent repayments is much more vulnerable than one that can pay them down over many years, even decades in some cases. Whether the debts are denominated in the local currency is also a big factor. States can always print money to repay loans and bonds in their own currency. Whether the credits are local or foreign can also matter greatly. Local lenders can be encouraged, cajoled, or even coerced much more readily than foreign creditors. This is a big reason why countries like Japan and Italy can keep staggering on. Most of their lenders are the domestic pension funds, insurers, banks and savers. But there is an X factor that often matters most of all. Willingness to pay. Some countries are able to shoulder immense hardship to avoid defaulting, while others cave in at the first brush of pressure. For example, Nicolae Ceausescu imposed draconian austerity measures on Romania in his determination to repay the $9 billion owed by the country to foreign banks in the 1980s. In contrast, Ecuador in 2008 decided that some of its foreign debts were illegitimate and defaulted despite the absence of any severe stresses. International developments can also have a big impact. Arturo points out that various popular fiscal and economic metrics do not capture the global demand for bonds, which often waxes and wanes depending on animal spirits and decisions by the world's biggest central banks. This demand can evaporate from one day to the other, perhaps because there was a political crisis, or because perhaps uh, the Fed or the ECB did something that the markets did not expect, and there was a rush to the exits. And so a failure to uh, understand that most uh, debt crises occur as a result of access to the markets evaporating, and oftentimes suddenly, that that's the problem, and that therefore we need to understand much better what drive drives investors to buy some risky assets or not. I think that those indicators are much more important uh, than some structural indicators. So how worried should we be about other countries around the world? For the most part, developed countries enjoy historically low borrowing costs. Most emerging markets are, despite deep challenges, in decent fiscal shape after learning the lessons of past crises. But there are a slew of states that do look very vulnerable, especially those that depend on oil revenues that have crashed recently. But there could be a bigger problem. Despite low interest rates, tepid growth since the financial crisis means that the global economy has continued to build up debts. That's across the state, corporate and household level. This is what worries Doug Redeker, a former US executive director on the IMF board and a visiting fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. But I think that the sovereign debt burden that we really have as a consequence of the last let's call it five years of zero, if not low interest rate policies across the world, means there is a buildup of debt at the sovereign level and at the quasi-sovereign level, which is really unprecedented. In other words, the problem isn't just sovereign debt of governments, 
for the borrowing of state-controlled or guaranteed entities like utilities, development banks, railways or financial institutions. We don't know what the unwinding of that situation is going to look like. And when you have banks that are not on balance sheet for a sovereign, but that actually pose huge systemic contingent liability risks to the sovereign, even if they're not explicitly contingent liability risks to the sovereign, we are entering into a period in which these could easily get worked out gently, gracefully, peacefully, or you could actually end up in a situation where very significant numbers of debt get put on balance sheet for sovereigns that have limited ability to refinance it. That's a big potential crisis waiting to happen. I'm not predicting it. It's certainly out there. And how the market responds to that is going to be extremely sensitive for the outcome, whether it's a benign outcome or quite a volatile one. Some economists fret that Italy could be one of the most vulnerable countries, given its debt burden and stagnant economy. Italy could suffer a lot. And, uh, and then at the end, at that point, uh, you would have to see whether the, the ECB would be willing to sort of backstop the debt, basically buying Italian government bonds, which what Bank of Italy would have done if, if, <laughs> uh, if Italy said the lira, or uh, if not, uh, you know, uh, a disaster could happen. So. That's Professor Panizza again. He warns that at some point, probably in the distant future, the European Central Bank will actually raise rates. At that point, Italy's borrowing costs will, all things being equal, probably rise and exacerbate its vulnerability. But even before then... And, and of course, the other big uh, source of uncertainty is the health of the Italian banking system because that, you know, we, we know that you know, one factor that one debt crisis are often originating to banking crisis. So that's, uh, that's another big scary point. So as Italian, I want to be optimistic, um, you know, and I hope that, you know, uh, that things will go well, but, but, um, but they're clearly uh, big dangers. But what happens when a country runs out of money? Well, we'll explore some of the complications surrounding sovereign debt restructuring in our next episode, when we'll be visiting Argentina a country with a long and unhappy history of reneging on its debts. I'm Robin Wigglesworth. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced and edited by Amy Keane. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.